0: Yeah, this is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. We're going to get into why it's called Palm Sunday. The palms are here because it's Palm Sunday. And, uh, yeah, you know, when I would have done sermons like this before, I was looking into Palm Sunday. I've never done a Palm Sunday sermon before. And I was like, man, I am glad I didn't do this before because I would have tried to pack way too much into this. But I was like, you know what? Good thing uh, this is my job now because I may have to do, like, Palm Sunday sermons, God willing, and the creek don't rise for many years. And luckily, there is a lot to talk about. I may even have planned out the next five Palm Sunday sermons. I was like, no, I can't do that. That'll be next year. That'll be 2021. So we're taking a break from Mark, obviously. Uh, I thought it would just be too much to do the triumphal entry Palm Sunday from Mark. So we're actually going to go over, we're going to be in the book of Matthew today. Uh, uh, Chapter 21, verse 1. And then at the very end, we're actually going to go over and leave Matthew and, and look at the, the end, the result in, in the Gospel of Luke. But we're going to start today in Matthew chapter 21. Now, um, I'm not going to get into all of the interesting details about Matthew. We're just going to drop down here right as the Lord is entering into Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about that. Now, it is extremely helpful, though, given everything else that we've been talking about in Mark, right right we just saw last week he's walking on the water he makes this big reveal about who he is and and so we're sort of in the midst of the gospel story and now what we're going to do is back away and come to the end and what we're going to see here is that he is no longer playing around right walking on the water was just sort of having fun now he is ready to show who he really is he is ready he's going into the lion's den as they say he is going right into the headquarters of of God's enemies and he is going to start uh, he, he's going to make sure that by the end of the week, they put him to death. <laughs> right? He is a troublemaker par excellence, and he is about to start making the worst kind of trouble that he has made yet in the Gospels. So before we get started, let us pray to the Lord. Father God, we thank you for your son who came into the world to save sinners. We thank you that you, Lord, loved us so much that you gave him to us. And since you gave him to us, what else would you withhold from us? You are a giving God. You are a loving God, a gracious God. You are God the generous. And we love your son. And we pray, Lord, now that as we look at the story of him entering his city, that we would receive him. That we would not turn away. That we would not look upon one another in judgment. That we would focus on him in his glory, and his goodness. Oh God, he is a bold king. And we are a people who in this age need a bold king. And we pray, God, that as we, we look at his story, as we look at what he did, that it would enliven us, that it would stir us up, that it would fill us with joy, and that we would come to him and worship him and throw ourselves down before him, just like his disciples did on that first Palm Sunday so long ago. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in the narrative flow of the Gospels, the triumphal entry actually is in all four Gospels. There are not a lot of things that actually show up in all four Gospels. Generally, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of overlap, and then John has a lot of interesting additional material. But it tells you something when a story like this shows up in all the the Gospel stories, Everybody wanted to talk about this. And, and and one of the reasons that they do that is that it's so full of, of echoes from the Old Testament. There are so many things going on here that it does actually take all four of them to just begin to scratch the surface of what Jesus is doing on this particular day. The triumphal entry is what begins what they call the passion narrative. Generally, the Gospels are not really very good biographies. They don't really, right, there's... Dozens and dozens of years in the middle of Jesus' life we don't know anything about. And generally, all the Gospels, half of it is is the the three years of his ministry on this earth. And then the the second half of almost all the Gospels is just about this week. This week of his life is the week that is the most important week in the history of, of, of mankind, the history of the cosmos. And he starts it off with the triumphal entry. Right? Now, what's funny here is that the, the Romans at the time had something called a triumph. If, if you went out and you were a good general and you defeated the enemies of Rome, you would receive what they call a triumph. And you'd get this big, beautiful arch. And, and they would put you on this golden chariot. And they would ride you into Rome like a conquering king. And it was, it was such a heady, such a glorious thing that they put a slave in there with you. And his job was to just lean over from time to time and say, you're just a man. You're not a God. Right? That, that's what a triumph is. So I love that they call this the triumphal entry because what has Jesus conquered at this point? Right? And where's his golden chariot? Right? And and frankly, I, I kind of want to put somebody in there with him just to remind him that he's a god, <laughs> not a man. Right? Because I'm like Michael. No pun intended. Right? Why are you debasing yourself that way, king? Why are you riding around? Right? I, the enemies of God, I would love it if he got on a golden chariot. And he came marching into Jerusalem and started slapping people around. I would frankly like if he did that. Now, what does that tell you about, right? I'm just like the disciples. When are we going to start slapping some Romans around? I mean, forget the Romans. When are we going to start slapping some Pharisees around? And it just goes to show you what kind of king we want, opposed to the king we have. So are we are we ready to receive this king? And you're thinking, well, you know, I've already received that king. Okay, well, the, the beauty of the Christian faith is that <laughs> right, he's so dynamic, the story is so complex, there's always something new to receive. You're always receiving him again. And so this morning, I pray that we all receive him again. John 12:13 refers specifically to palm branches, which is appropriate because they're coming from the, the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho is called the city of Palms. John 12:1 and verse 12, so chapter 12, verse one and 12, also enables us to identify this as the Sunday before Passover. There's no doubt about what day this is. This is the Sunday before Passover. Everybody has palm branches. Now this is one of the stories I'm not going to get into. Why palm branches? There is a ton to be said about that. The Maccabees were kings that they, uh, Israel had in the testimonial period. And, and that's where this throwing palm branches down before him comes from. But palm branches has a long history in the Old Testament. They're something that you often see in festivals. And if you want to know more about that, come back in 2020. <laughs> Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And he, he is fulfilling a, a, a prophecy. Now, what I like about him at this point is that there's no longer accidents. You read earlier in the Gospels, and he just he, he's just doing his thing, and he's fulfilling scripture left and right. There is something that goes on in his ministry where he comes to realize as a man who he really is. Now, he's always known. He's always known. But as time goes on and momentum builds and pressure against him builds, he really begins to embrace this. He looks for opportunities. It's as if he's read the Old Testament and he realizes it's a script, right? And the costume fits. He's ready to rock and roll. He's like, "I, I get what I'm supposed to do. I get what buttons I'm supposed to push. And I get how I'm supposed to push them. And so that's why he's looking for donkeys. He knows what he's, okay, I've arrived. I'm the king. This is the last week on earth. And what I need are two donkeys. He just knows it. Right, it's not like he just is wandering through this town. He's like, right, he's walked for a very long time, by the way. So it's not like he's gotten tired here at the end because his entire ministry, never once in any other time it does he ride on any animal. Ever. He walks everywhere. So it's not suddenly like Jesus is tired, right? You know, I've been walking since the beginning of this gospel and really what I want to do is just sit down. No, he's standing there knowing what he's about to do and he says, you know what this story needs? Some donkeys. <laughs> he's a, he, he's intentional about this. This is there's is strategy here. He's come to he, he is a prophet, the prophet, and he's come to Jerusalem to die and he's ready to die. He's ready to just put the foot on the gas and get going. One might think the uh, he's intentionally exposing himself to the ridicule of all and he is. He is. He's deliberately arranging things to fulfill the prophetic scriptures. He is saying something about himself. What is he saying? Right? What is this elaborate pantomime all about? Two donkeys? Right? Why is he on the Mount of Olives? Why is he? There's a lot of gates on Jerusalem. Why is he entering the one that he's entering? Why are people putting? Right? I I, I love it. I'm I, again like Michael, school marmy Michael. Looking at David, I'm wondering, like, aren't these guys are now going to go into this city and they're going to be confronted by all these Jewish leaders and aren't they concerned about their clothes getting all dirty? Right? I, I, right out of the gate, like, what, what is all of this about? Why are the, the disciples throwing their clothes on the ground and letting donkeys walk over? How do you think they're going to smell after that? They're going to go up to the temple? They're going to go up to the temple after a donkey has walked across their clothes. Well, they do go up to the temple. What is all of this about? What is all of this about? Let's find out. (laughs) Matthew 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, that's not how you say that word. I wrote it phonetically in my script here, and then I forgot the fact that I was going to have to read it. That is not how you say Bethphage. I've been saying Bethphage since I became a Christian, but I'll I'll explain in a moment how to uh, actually pronounce that word. So they came to this weird town that starts with a B, and they came from there to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, Fiji that's actually how you say the word, Fiji, right? This is, I spend so much money on Logos Bible software so I can learn how to say these words properly, so I'm going to say them properly. Fiji. man. So these towns, Bethphage and Bethany, are two small villages just to the east of Jerusalem on or near the slopes of a very large hill known as the Mount of Olives. Being from Seattle, if we saw this hill, we would say, Mount, where is the mountain? And you'd be like looking beyond it for the mountain. But they call it the Mount of Olives. It dominates the skyline on that side of town. So why is he there? Now, what's fascinating is he goes on to give, he spends a lot of time here, actually, there's something called the Olivet Discourse, this long speech that he gives that all the Gospels record that he gives while he's on this mountain. He spends a lot of time on this mountain. But we find out in Zechariah 143 through 4, that the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. So, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives like, like he's arrayed for battle. And Jesus says, okay, um, I am arrayed, I'm the Messiah, and so where I need to be is on the Mount of Olives. And so that's where he goes. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's a very elaborate dance at this point. And he, and he, it's amazing how much scripture he knows. And it's amazing how he's able to just tie it all together and, and, and hope that everybody around him sees who he is. But this is just the beginning. Where's the Messiah when he's arrayed for battle against the enemies of God? On the Mount of Olives. He goes from the Mount of Olives ac- across the Kidron Valley into the city, reversing the path that David took when he fled from Jerusalem during the rebellion of Absalom. David fell. And he fled on two donkeys. <laughs> the king, David, the great warrior, he didn't retreat from Jerusalem on a chariot. He didn't retreat on a... On a he didn't have time. Right? The fall of the Davidic kingship happened when his son rebelled, Absalom, and David flees the town in exactly this path on two donkeys. And, and frankly, they've been waiting for him to come back ever since. Now, if you don't know the story, David was spending time on the roof when he should have been at war, and, you know, about the time of day when women like to bathe in the hot sun, where he's not supposed to be, and that starts a whole series of events in which he steals a man's wife and murders him. And then, right, what happens there is there's this decline of his kingship, and his son shames him, and his son rebels against him, and his son takes Jerusalem, and David has to flee, and he flees in exactly this path on two donkeys. Jesus coming into the city is a return of David. It's a return of that king that they've been longing for, they've been waiting for ever since the first king. David was the first king, and they thought, this is it. This is the one who's going to save us. This is the one who's going to fulfill the promise to restore man into into the Garden of Eden long ago. And what happened to him, just like all of the sons of promise in the Old Testament, they all failed. So ever since he fled on the two donkeys, they've been waiting for the king to come back on two donkeys. We go on, verse 2 and 3, 2 through 3. He said to them, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey. Get the donkey and bring it to me. Now, (laughs) I don't know about you, but if I was at an A.M.P.M. and I came out and some person walked up and said, hey, the mayor needs your car. Say, well, the mayor can buy a car, right? There's a car dealership right down the road. I'm sure... The police department has a car you can borrow. Like, Who is standing around with their property and somebody walks up to you and says, hey, we're going to need these, and you say, okay. Now, what's, what they're instructed to say is, that, hey, God needs these. That's actually what it is. God, God needs these donkeys. So what are they demonstrating here about Jesus? Now, there's elaborate commentaries about this about how this is a prearranged thing. Like, Jesus came out there in the middle of the night and found a guy that had donkeys and said, hey, here's some money. I'm going to send some people to get these donkeys tomorrow. You make sure that they're here. Well, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. And, and, and the supernatural element of this try, they try to explain away, like we always do, because we're uncomfortable with the fact that when this guy hears this command that the Lord needs your donkeys, he's God, right? Who, Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God. Everything that you see is his. And when he says, right, you you get Peter looking at you, and Peter's a little crazy, right? There's Peter, and he's untying your donkey, and you're like, what are you doing, man? Uh, The Lord needs these. And the guy knew in his heart that, yes, the Lord needs them. They do exactly the same thing in a few days when Jesus decides it's time to celebrate the Passover. He says, hey, go in this guy's house. It's all set up. Tell him I'll be there tomorrow. Jesus is demonstrating here, not that he just knows who's got some donkeys and doesn't need them. He is the Lord of that guy. He's the Lord of that guy and all that guy's stuff. And that guy knows it. That's amazing to me in, in, in all of this, right? I mean, I would be, after everything else, I'd be like, you, you want me just to go steal the donkeys? You want me to just steal the donkeys? Okay. And then you go and you think, all right, now we're going to get into scrap, but it's Peter, he's got a sword, he's ready. And then the guys just let us take him. I mean, I I would be quite, I'd be throwing some clothes down on the ground in front of this guy, maybe. Now, Matthew is the only one that talks about two donkeys. Everybody else talks about the the foal. Matthew mentions two. And as I've already described, there's a reason, several reasons for this. Matthew has an overall purpose in his gospel that I'm not going to get into now. It has a lot to do with Jesus and David. And so here he is coming into the city. He's got to ride on two donkeys. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. Because that's what David did. That's what Jesus has to do. Nobody else decides. None of the other gospel writers mention the two donkeys because they don't think it's an important detail. But Matthew thinks it's very important. Right? But the fact that it's a foal is also very important. And here's why. Numbers chapter 19, verse 1 through 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, this is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish and on which a yoke has never come. So in order to be set apart for the use of the Lord, something has to have never actually done any work. It can't be marred in any way and it can't have worked in any way. And so here is a baby donkey that's never been ridden by anybody before and if what, they, they try to explain this away too, but think about it, right? If there's any farmers in here, you can verify that this is true. If you want a young animal to do this, right, carry a person or pull a plow, one of the ways you get to do it is you take its mommy who's always been with him and the mommy leads ahead and the col who's just is like, oh, I always follow mom, follows mom. So not only do they fulfill this idea that David left on two and so Jesus comes on two, one way to get a colt, who's ne- or a foal who's never been ridden to do what you want it to do is to bring its mother. Uh, I know this because of horse racing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a whole thing there. I, I, I once was a partial owner of a horse race. That's another story for another day. The point is, though, I was like, why is that little horse running around with that big horse? Right? Have you ever thought, how do they get a horse to run around a track in exactly the way they're supposed to? But when they're very small, they get the mom out there, who already knows what to do, and she runs around the track the direction she's supposed to, and the baby follows. Same thing here. You want this donkey to go a certain direction, do a certain thing, bring mommy. Hmm. The significance is that this is the Lord God. He needs something set apart. He doesn't want somebody's used donkey. He wants a fresh one. And and, and and by doing this, he's fulfilling all kinds of scriptures. Scriptures about David. Scriptures about holy things, things set apart. It, it, it's, this is already here, right? A lot of stuff. Jesus is arranging this. But we go on. Verse 4 through 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Oh, Oh, so there's these other things he was fulfilling, but now there's more that he's fulfilling. This is what the prophet said. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Well, who's the daughter of Zion? Now, we've covered that. The daughter of Zion is Israel. Why Why humble? Why is it humble? Well, what do kings usually ride on? Do kings usually ride on donkeys? It's symbolic when a king rides into town on a donkey, what he means is peace. What he means is that he's seeking peace. If he comes on a war horse, that's intimidating, right? When the king shows up and he's wearing his armor and he's got his sword and he's got his charger, you're thinking, what is he doing? He comes like, on this little donkey with his feet dragging on the ground. You're like, okay, he comes in peace. When Solomon became king, David understood this, and David put him on a donkey. He said, ride him into town declare him to be king so jesus he he is a humble guy he's already been telling them you're not uh, right the kingdom of god is not like other kingdoms And, and what's he doesn't wait until after he's finished right after the resurrection he doesn't go following the disciples around on a donkey right here when he's going into their hometown he's already been whooping them up and down the coast in israel now he's going into the capital to whoop them there and he comes riding a donkey Because the point all along is peace. He's not riding on a war horse. He's not conquering so that he can rule over people with an iron fist. He's bringing peace. And and, I mean, Zechariah, I tried to unwind that a little bit. I'm just going to say, go read it. I mean, you think Isaiah is full of prophetic stuff. Zechariah is unbelievable. And, And the level of detail. The level of detail is amazing. Let's go and look at just a few of the verses. If you go to Zechariah, verse, or chapter 14, let's see if I can find it now. This is the trick. and the pastor find this obscure book, Zechariah? I did, because I put a little thing there. <laughs> Let me tell you, yesterday I had a little... <laughs> it's one of those books you're like, are you sure that's in the Bible? Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. God is going to gather the nations to attack Jerusalem. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he remove half the people? Judgment. Judgment, right? If you've, if you've not read the Old Testament, I'm, spoiler alert. (laughs) Israel is extraordinarily unfaithful. And God uses the nations to judge her. So here's Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives looking over the city, and what is he there to do? Well, he wants to bring peace, but do they accept that? That's the key. How are they going to receive him? How they receive him determines what he does. I'm going to read a little more here because this is actually really important. Still in Zechariah chapter 14 down to verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimnah, Rimin, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. It's the Lord who comes, and it's the Lord who sets things straight. Jerusalem will stand from that day on because the Lord cleaned it. Now, again, spoiler alert, what does Jesus do right after he goes into town? Angry Jesus. He goes into the temple and he starts throwing tables over and whipping people. He's cleaning house. He's coming. And he he wants to bring peace, and he will bring peace. And so you either accept his coming and get the peace, or you reject it and you get the war, and then you'll get peace anyway. Right? But There's two kinds of peace. There's the kind of peace where two... Nations who don't like one another sit down and figure out their differences. You know, usually somewhere in Europe, like Geneva, somewhere nice. They sit down, they talk it out, they work it out, and they have peace. The other way to get peace between two angry nations is what? World War II, right? There was a whole lot of peace in the world after World War II. There were other ways to get it, though. And Jesus is coming, and he's not the kind of king that is going to just breathe fire out of his mouth, obliterate Jerusalem, and start over. He come, he come, he's coming on a donkey. I'm coming in peace. I want to give Jerusalem what it's always wanted, security and peace forever. This is what he's come to do. Verse 6 and 7, we're back in Matthew now. Go back to Matthew, verse 6 and 7, this is what it says. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The whole scene bespeaks of Jesus' kingship. Matthew gives us an inordinate amount of space to Jesus' instructions. Think about it. That's a lot of verses to just explaining what he's doing with donkeys. It's even fewer verses about the actual entry into Jerusalem. But even this, even this, it, I, Genesis forty-nine ten through 11. This is what Jacob says about his son Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. You know, Peter's starting to figure it out, I think. Peter receives the the donkey. He's going back and he's like, you know what, this reminds me of something. Like a lion of Judah or something. Like a king or something. who's riding on a foal. And we're not talking David here either. We're going all the way back to the beginning. To the tribe of Judah. And the fact that the scepter, right, before there's a David, before there's any of that other stuff that comes later, way back with Judah, Jacob says... The scepter will never be taken from you. And you're going to be bathed in blood. Now, that sounds terrifying. And yet, that guy who's bathed in blood is riding on a donkey. Now, in any other time in Old Testament history, like, that just doesn't make sense. Right? It doesn't make sense. Because the, the king who's going to war rides a horse, and he goes out and he covers himself in the blood of his enemies because he tramples them down. What, 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 riding a donkey is, is a way of peace, and he tramples people down? He tramples people down with peace? He tramples them down with peace. He's covered in blood. Whose blood? His blood. He tramples them down with peace. He tramples them down with love. He tramples them down with self sacrifice. Now, here, here are all these people. There's, there's two crowds. People get very confused about what all this means. right? How many of you guys have heard a sermon before about the fact of the fickleness of the crowd and here they are on this Sunday and they're worshiping Jesus and look at how they're just praising him. And then a few days later they're all saying crucify him. Has anyone heard a sermon like that? Yeah. yeah that's not true. There are two crowds here. And unless you look at all the gospel accounts, you miss it. The people who are singing Hosanna, the people who are throwing their clothes down in front of him, it says in Luke, it says in John, are his followers, the people that have been with him all along. And, and that group has been, just been increased because he just raised Lazarus from the dead, right? And so what you have are all these people who know who he is, who have received him. And then you have this other crowd, the one who's coming out of Jerusalem saying, who, who is this guy? Why are you all worked up into a lather here? Calm down. So you have these two crowds, and they're opposed to one another because they're receiving him very differently. One receives him, and they're throwing their clothes down in front of him, and palm branches down in front of them, and they're obeying his commands. And this crowd is just full of doubt and questions, and all they want to do now is prove that he doesn't know what he's talking about, and he's not really who he is, and that culminates in his death. The crowd who cries, crucify you, is there on Palm Sunday, but they're the ones standing around the gate of Jerusalem going, what is this all about? Yeah, we're not having this. I don't care where he's standing. I don't care if he's riding on donkeys. I ain't having that guy as my king. And so what you have are these two different responses, two different receptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's all kinds of echoes here about the clothes, but what, what is really going on is when you throw your clothes down in front of someone is you're throwing yourself down in front of them. Walk on me. Walk on me. I am yours. You are my Lord. I don't care if you trample me down with this donkey. I am yours. They are throwing themselves down before him. And they're singing. And this is the time of Passover. And so there's this song called the Hillel. And it's made up of Psalm 113 to 118. And they're singing portions of Psalm 118. Hosanna to God in the highest, which means God saves. They're praising him. They're calling him the son of David. They're talking about his kingdom because they understand. They've been with him from the beginning, and they know that the exodus is done. This is now we're crossing over to the other side. Now, we know that there's all kinds of mistakes in their minds. They really do think, they're like myself, they're coming there to slap some Pharisees around. And at first, it looks like that's what's going to happen because, man, look at him in that. Look at Jesus go up in that temple and start smacking people. And Peter's like, whoo! I sharpened my sword, I'm ready to go, I don't really know how to use it. Just, right? Because what did Moses do when the golden calf? He said, who's with me? And all the Levites came to him and they ran around the camp of the people of God stabbing all the ones who were, who were worshiping the idol. And so Peter seems a little eager, doesn't he? And at first it looks like he's gonna Jesus is going to do exactly what they want him to do. But for this moment, this moment, they've been out there, they've been in the boats, they've been in the wilderness. They're singing the Psalms of Passover because they get who He is on some level. They're ready for a new king, they're ready for a new priesthood, they're ready for a new temple, they're ready for a new way. They are groaning for it, they're, they're desperate for it. And because they're desperate for it, when He comes, they throw themselves down in front of Him and they sing and they rejoice. But there's another crowd. Verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Close, guys, close. He is a prophet, I'll give you that. But is that all he is? Now, that word stirred is actually something much more than that. Now, you recall a few things here. In the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, when the, when the um, Magi come from afar, they come to Jerusalem and say, hey, the king was born, where is he? It says there, all Jerusalem was stirred up. But I mean, stirred like what, like a cocktail? Right? I, <laughs> the word in English just doesn't have the punch. When, when the king is coming, every, these people are a little, they're stirred up. But it's important to understand what the nature of that stirring is. The word would be better if it were shaken. Now, all through the Old Testament, the people of God, Israel, is referred to as a tree. And so now he's coming to the gates of the city, and it is shaken. It's shaken like an earthquake. It's shaken like a giant bear has got the tree, and it's small, and he has shaken it. We were, we were camping last year, and I've never seen this before, but we saw my boys and I saw a bear. And I was like, man, I like that bear, and here's why because he wasn't climbing up in that tree. You kept seeing him. He kept trying to climb, and the branch would fall down. And so he actually stood up, and he grabs the tree, and he starts shaking it, and the fruit came raining down. And I was like, there you go. That's how you get a snack. Right? He is shaking Jerusalem, and people are falling out. They're coming out. They're like, what what is this? Who is this? What is going on? From the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 12 through 13, we read this. and, And this is the echo here. When he opened the sixth seal, this is Jesus. I'm not going to get into all the seals right now. He just opens a seal. That's all you need to know. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell on the, to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. That's the same word, shaken by a gale. They're not just buzzing, right? It's not like yesterday, the Star Wars... Preview comes out. Everyone's buzzing. Everyone's stirred up. It's amazing. Oh my gosh, what's this movie going to be about? The Skywalker's, right? You we get used to all this buzz, all this stirring. Th- this isn't that. This is an occupying force in a place they don't belong—Jerusalem—and they are terrified because who is this guy making himself out to be, and what is he going to do now? And for a moment, just like the disciples, they, their fears are justified because he goes in there and he starts flipping tables over and smacking people around. Yeah, they're a little frightened. They're a little frightened. All right, now turn with me to Luke. Chapter 19. This is what brings this sweet baby home here. You've got these two crowds. One is rejoicing and singing and throwing themselves down before him. The other crowd is frightened, and they should be. They should be. Remember Zechariah? right? Jerusalem will get peace. Jerusalem will get security. But something else is going to happen first if they don't receive their king. I'm going to start in chapter 19. I'm going to just read through these verses and then explain them. So I'm going to start in verse 38. I'm going to come see you. I need some glasses. The disciples are saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, The nations are coming. Zechariah wasn't, right? Zechariah knew what he was talking about. They're coming to Jerusalem. The visitation has come. They didn't know what made for peace. And what made for peace is throwing yourself down in front of the king. Well, well the king, what are you talking about? He's riding a donkey. He has no army. They didn't get it. Right? And their children will be cut off the face of the earth. The God of heaven is a God of generations. For those who love him, for those who throw themselves down for a thousand generations, we haven't even had a thousand generations yet, by the way. There's only been about 800 since the beginning of time. We don't even understand the length and breadth of that promise. But if you don't throw yourself down in front of him for four generations, he cuts you off Sounds like David's wife, doesn't it? See, we're going to go back. We're going to go back beyond Maccabees. We're going to go back beyond Solomon. We're going to go back beyond Jehu. We're going to go back to David. The man after God's own heart. And he was leading the throne of God. right. Forget the donkeys and all that stuff. The Lord God has come into Jerusalem before. And he came on the mercy seat, they called it, on the ark. That was his throne. And how did David receive it? And there's his wife, right? Literally looking down on it all from her upper window. And, and she is this, the daughter of a displaced king, Saul. Now, Jesus, again, he's been out whooping Satan from one end of the kingdom to the other. And, and, and who is his bride? Satan's bride right? Think about this. All Israel thinks they're God's people. They think they're God's bride. They think they're the daughter of Zion, but they're not the daughter of Zion. They're the daughter of Satan. So you've got Michael and you've got Jerusalem, and there's your comparison. Michael is the daughter of a displaced king. Jerusalem is the daughter of a displaced king, because it's not the Lord. It's Satan. And they look out on the disciples of the Lord God and how they're acting in front of the throne of God and their heart is full of anger and hatred. And he cuts them off. She's fruitless, they're fruitless. And there's Jesus on the donkey. He's like, yes. I have come to bring peace. I have come. This is the time of visitation today, as long as it is today that I am here. How are you going to receive me? Now, how often how often do you, do you see people before the throne of God and think, why are they doing that? Why are they raising their hands? Why aren't they raising their hands? Why are they making such a fuss? Why are they so worried about celebrating with with all these cookies on Good Friday. <laughs> Why is that such a big deal? Why are we making such a big deal out of all this stuff? There's this fastidious, fussy, bitter, frigid way to right, act in front of the throne of God. And right, Reformed people, I think we've all seen that example. And then there are these other people who aren't paying. I don't care. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what the church on the street is doing because my eyes are on Jesus. My eyes are on the throne. My eyes are on the mercy seat. I don't care if I look like an idiot. I don't care if I sound like an idiot. How many times have you been at work or been in front of someone or saying that Jesus is your Lord, right? Oh, why do you homeschool? Well, Jesus is my Lord. No, we don't make that argument, right? No, we're like, well, you know, the public school system sucks. Uh, no, Jesus is the Lord, and he said, raise them this way, and so I'm raising them this way. Yeah, why are you reading your Bible on break? Oh, um, well, you know, i got to get my 15 minutes in. How often are you embarrassed? How often are you judging others? There, There are two ways to receive him. One is exuberance. One is throwing yourself down in front of him. One is luxuriating in him and who he is. And you don't care who's looking. You don't care who's listening. You don't care what they think. And there's another way to receive him, which is like this. Look at that guy over there. Look at City Church. My goodness. Yeah, you know, they may or may not have really terrible theology in some areas, but your eyes are on them. Most of them wear their eyes. There's only one of two ways to receive him. Selflessly or self-righteously. Humbly or arrogantly. Judging or forgetting all about yourself. There's only two ways to receive him. How are you receiving him? And right, I was baptized. I came out of the water. I remember receiving him too. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you open this up and you don't care who's looking. You don't care what it costs you. You're focused on him. You come, right? You gather your family around and you pray. You're at the zoo. Somebody falls and hurts themselves. And, you, and your little kid says, hey, let's pray for that person. And you're like, well, you know, this is the public sphere. We'll pray in the car. How are you receiving him? This is the good news. He's here. He's before you. He's, every day he is before you. He's come and he's not leaving. So turn to him. Get your eyes on him. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your neighbor. Get your eyes off the, everything around. Look at him and unashamedly, exuberantly throw yourself down before him and say, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the revelation of your son. We thank you that he did not stay away, but he did in fact come. We pray, Lord God, that we would repent of our sins of self-righteousness and self-justification, a judgmental, unloving harshness that we just walk around with in in the bitterness of our hearts. We pray, God, that we would lay all of that down, that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would hold nothing back, that we would love and praise you and worship you and devote ourselves entirely to you. We thank you and we praise you for this, your Sunday. Amen.